evening to you all. I hope you've all had a good week this week. Have you all had a good week? There's a certain nod. Yes? Just mark yourself out of 10 and say to the person next to you what sort of week you've had. Four out of 10, five out of 10. Quickly say to the person next to you, you've already said, fantastic. Well, it's lovely to see you all this morning. My name is Kate Woodward, married to the lovely Neil Woodward, who's sitting here. Yes. It's our wedding anniversary this week. Yeah. How many years have we been together, darling? Pardon? 27. <laughs> 27 years. What do we get for 27 years? Is that, what is that? Is that anything special? Pardon? Oh, it's good. No, is it gold? Oh, anyway. Oh, right. Are you ready? Your seat belt's in. Off we go. Well, we're going to carry on with Esther, part two this morning. Oh, I can see all these lovely people. Lovely to see you all. It feels like you're very far away from me this morning. Come closer. Come closer. Lean in. Anyway, and I'm just saying we're going to carry on with um, Esther, and we're going to look at chapter three. But let's remind ourselves really briefly about what I mentioned last week. Last week, we looked at the materialism and appearance of obsession of Susa, Esther's world. And we saw it is actually quite a lot like our world. And we saw how the writer of the book of Esther is trying, is really trying to, to help us to see that it is utterly laughable to try and get rid of God and just live for physical stuff. And we heard how a wo woman called Queen Vashti, I love that name, refused to be seen as merely, an, as merely as another object alongside all the others the great King Xerxes owned. She refused to be seen as an object, and all of which led the king to search for a new wife. As we heard that as many as a thousand women taken from the provinces ranging from India to Ethiopia were trafficked and brought to a high ream in modern-day Iran. And among these women, subject to such horror, one was called Esther. But in the midst of the darkness, we hear that Esther found favor. Hesed, the Hebrew word, is for God's unfailing love. And that was present for Esther, God's unfailing love. And in the midst of the darkness, God was with her, was with Esther. And so Esther was chosen to be the wife of this notorious and powerful king which is where we pick up the story in chapter 3. So let's just quickly pray. Lord, we give you thanks for Alpha going on in the other room. We give you thanks for what you're doing in this place. We give you thanks for the vineyard kids in the other wing. And Lord, let your kingdom come. Let us be a church with no walls, that people could see you for how you're supposed to be seen. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, like only you can. Come rain down upon us this morning. You know where we sit and where we rise. You know our thoughts from afar. You know what is on our hearts. So come, Lord. Amen. Okay. So this morning, we're going to look at 
how to resist, resist enemies and how to resist evil. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me, chapter 3, and it's up there, and that, so you can read it on there. So let me just take it out, chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agitite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned from Mordecai's people, where he scorned the idea of killing all the all um, the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. How do we resist evil? How do we resist a powerful enemy? Haman is a powerful enemy to have made. But before we think about him and resisting him specifically, we see that Haman himself struggles with his own even more powerful enemy, and that is his own pride. And we take a look at these verses. We get to see what happens to people who let pride reign. And as the chapters go on, we'll look at it in more next week, we see that Esther seems to understand this. When she invites Haman and the king to a various feast she was going to hold, she knew how Haman would love being near the king. But we see more examples of Haman's pride and what it means to have pride as an enemy. What does pride look like? What does it really look like? Well, Haman had the highest position in the administration of the most powerful empire on earth. This was a hierarchical culture of shame and honor, and in that culture, bowing was instinctive. You bowed to someone older than you, you bowed to someone socially superior to you, bowed to someone higher than you in the pecking order. But Haman was a person who would have wanted to have people bowing to him. He was someone who needed the king to command people to bow to him, which it says in the word. And in that context, Mordecai refused. He simply refused to do it. He refused to give respect where he felt none was due. And that seriously, you can imagine it, seriously annoyed Haman. Looking at chapter 5, verse 11 to 13, just to get an insight into the extent of Haman's pride. Calling together his friends and Zerash, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. All of that success, he boasts about, doesn't give him any satisfaction while he sees this Jew sitting at the king's gate. It's a really interesting portrait of an arrogant and proud, but at the same time, a really insecure person. What is pride? Well, C.S. Lewis says this, pride is ruthless, sleepless, 
unsmiling concentration of the self. Pride makes you concentrate on you. It stops being about the people around you or a cause greater than you. There can't even be any focus on what you're doing because everything is about you. Insofar that everyone else features at all, pride is only interested in comparison. In a competitive assessment, other people only feature in comparison to you. C.S. Lewis puts it like this again, in a slightly different way. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next person. It is the comparison makes you proud. It is the pleasure about being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride is gone. It is not enough that I can be doing well. I need to be doing better than the people around me. Pride turns everything into a means to an end. The end is getting approval. The end is feeling superior. Pride is about endless ego. Calculation, adding things up. Am I going to get what I really deserve? How am I regarded? How is everything going for me? And in this text, we see the superiority of pride, and Haman suffers from this. But to do with, the, um, but the mirror of superiority is inferiority. Pride being around inferior means that you are constantly down on yourself, constantly and continuously self-conscious, verbally, mentally, forever beating yourself up. The self-absorption is the same. The self is totally and utterly central. Tim Keller writes this. The thing we will remember from meeting a truly gospel, humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of the gospel is humility. It is not thinking more of myself or is not thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things to myself. It is an end to thought such as, I am in the room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. There is a real freedom in self-forgetfulness the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Not requiring or wanting or needing the approval of others. Not living in a constant, continual, competitive comparison. A humble person is a happy person who is at peace. Haman, here in, in Esther, is afflicted by an enemy and by the enemy of pride. And what does pride lead to? Pride causes Haman to want to go beyond just killing Mordecai to now slaughtering all the Jews. There is a kind of all-consuming obsessive greed that can, comes with this kind of pride. Pride harms us. It harms the person who is afflicted by pride. But it also has a ripple effect, a tsunami of pain, of grief, violence, and destruction impacting those around us in relationships, in communities, in families. Pride is toxic. In chapter 3, we see that King Xerxes allows Haman to carry out his plan to destroy the Jews. 
taking their wealth as plunder, and thousands of people are going to die. Pride leads to devastation and to destruction. There's a physiological and a social deadliness to it, and pride is the enemy of all God's people. Whether we battle with superiority or inferiority, and Haman is here in Scripture as a warning to us. He is here in Scripture as a warning. Don't let pride spoil your life or the lives of those around you. Now, of course, as Christians, whenever we read the Old Testament, we read it through the lens of Jesus because we know that there is a New Testament. And the New Testament is the reality. And the writer of this book did not know that there would be a New Testament to look forward to. But we know that in Christ, we have the opportunity to change, to be transformed. We can turn to him. If we have pride as our enemy and it's powerful in our lives, we have the potential of Christ as the deliverer. There's a chap called Tom Torrance from the States. And as a teenager, he got drawn into extreme right-wing thinking. He signed up to become a member of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And by the time he was a young man, he'd been arrested by the American authorities and had been imprisoned for terrorism. Now, he was a pretty fanatical person, and he was obsessed with white supremacy, which was the pride and superiority that drove his life. While in prison, he recruited so many people to help him escape, and he actually did manage to escape, which put him on America's 10 most wanted list when Edgar Hoover was head of the FBI. And a particular agent um, um, of the FBI was given the job of tracking him down, recapturing him, and putting him back to prison, which is probably not an easy job. This particular agent was married to a Christian, and this lady was in a women's Bible study. And she was very concerned about the salvation of her husband, the FBI agent. And she and her friends would regularly pray that her husband, the FBI agent, would become a Christian. Now, the FBI agent, FBI agent, if I can say it right, was obsessed and was working hard to try and track Tom Torrance down. He needed to capture this, one of America's top 10 wanted. Eventually, he tracked him down. And there was a shootout, they recaptured him, and he was put in total um, solitary confinement in a maximum security prison. While he was in prison, he was allowed to ask for books to read, and they were sent to a cell for him, um, and then he could read them. The first one he asked for was um, Hitler's Mein Kampf, that he read, and then he asked for other extreme white-wing literature. Anyway, for some reason, after reading the right-wing literature, he asked for the New Testament. So he sat and read the New Testament. And he read, and he read the New Testament, and that is where he met the Lord. He met the Lord Jesus Christ in solitary confinement in the maximum prison. And his toxic hate and pride that he had in his heart just completely disappeared. He was utterly transformed. He even started a prayer meeting in the prison with the head of the Black Panthers. Now, he was a pretty well-known guy, this Tom Torrance, so he knew, his own news of this story got out that he had become a Christian. 
and I actually got back to J. Edgar Hoover, who was a little concerned that this conversation was an attempt to get his sentence reduced by pretending to have an irreligious experience. So the poor FBI, FBI agent, which I still can't say, was sent with the task to find him and to track him down in prison. Oh, sorry, um, I've completely... Oh, yeah, the FBI agent was the, who tracked him down was sent to see how Tom was. And when he walked into the prison cell, he knew. He knew that the person sitting across from him was a totally different person. He knew that he had met Jesus and, he, and Jesus had transformed him, that even his countenance had looked different. The FBI agent went into the cell extremely skeptical and walked out convinced of the reality of a God who could change the heart and change the life and change the mind of a right-wing racist terrorist. And the FBI agent became a Christian. And as you can imagine, his wife was totally, and the Bible study, were very excited about this. And later on, Tom worked together with the FBI agent on the civil rights movement. Now, Tom is an older man. He is a humble man. He is an incredible, he has an incredible testimony transformed by Jesus. Pride is no longer his enemy. Pride is no longer in his heart because God got hold of him. Haman's enemy is pride. The second point I want to make is resisting Haman himself as the enemy. The threat of intimidation that are coming from Haman are pretty ominous in this text. The thing about Haman is he wants to make God's people afraid. He wants to destroy and discourage and bring an end to them. And here in the text, the enemy is Haman himself. But in Esther, it's clear he represents the enemy of God's people. So we are left with a question. How do we resist? How do we resist the enemy of God's people? And how do Esther and God's people here in the text resist him? You see, the reality is that all of us as followers of Jesus face and experience opposition, difficulty, trials, and enemies. Some of it will be trivial, some of it will be more serious. Often just the threat and the accompanying fear is enough to paralyze us. This book of Esther ripples with threat. Haman is threatening Mordecai, I'm going to kill you. Now it's not just that, it's I'm going to take, take all the stuff from your people and I'm going to kill all of them. Not just a few of them in the citadel, but all of them in the known world. Resisting fear and threat is part of the Christian life. So what can we learn from Esther about how we might resist fear? What does Esther teach us about this? Before we get into this, I just want to make a note that a medical anxiety disorder is a mental health diagnosis. It can be experienced as an illness in the same way that cancer or tuberculosis are an illness. We know that God sometimes intervenes and heals people, but certainly not all the time. We also know when God heals, it's not a badge of his approval, of him saying, well done, you're a good Christian. You get a healing. We know that's not right. 
We know that healing are signs of God's reality in our world today, pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to heavenly reality. So many Christians will struggle with illness, cancer, depression, asthma. And so if you are struggling with an anxiety or an anxiety disorder today, hear me this day when I say, first of all, seek medical advice, doctors and our National Health Service are a great expression of the kingdom of God, and we thank God for them. So seek medical help, and we would also love to pray for you. In the same way, we would love to pray for any other healing. The Lord is the Lord of miracles. Alongside that, the Bible is full of promises that we can and do experience deliver us from natural fears from fears related to an enemy tactic of confusion, intimidation, and fear. And as a child of God, in the work God has called us to do, you may well face intimidation, you may well experience fear. And God is powerful enough to intervene and help us. And in his word, he has given us some tools on how we might resist the enemy. I just want to draw out from um, chapter 4 from the text of Esther that might help us today. How do the Jews and Mordecai respond? Chapter 4, verse 1 verse, and verse 3. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. How do we resist the enemy? By fasting and weeping. How do we resist the enemy? By fasting and weeping. This is a time to cry out to God. You might remember that I mentioned that God's name is absent from this book. It's a kind of literary device. It's an intentional contrast of the preening king Xerxes, whose name is constantly everywhere. It's about the irony that God's name is nowhere and Xerxes' name is everywhere. But God totally is in control. So when we see they fasted and they wept, we know from the Old Testament context this is the way of crying out to God. Pray to him, call out to him in the discouragement and the rubbish. Do we fast and pray and weep? Do we feel under threat when we feel under pressure? When we sense the enemy and the storm clouds are just rolling in over us, all the anxiety that brings with it, call out to God, fast, weep and pray. Fasting and weeping is the first. The second key It's not just Mordecai, it is all God's people who wept and fasted. Chapter 4, verse 3. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And you see that Esther and her servants join in with this, because we do not resist fear and threat alone. In the Bible, we stand together with each other to resist threat and fear. The theologian Leslie Weatherhead tells the story of the Second World War. He writes of two soldiers who were really great friends. And one evening, one of the soldiers came back to the trench, and his friend had not returned. 
And as many people had been killed that day, he became afraid and worried his friend had been killed. He asked around, have you seen my friend? And they said, well, no, we haven't seen I don't think he's dead, they said, but they thought he might be badly wounded. And if he's not back now, it will be almost impossible for him to come back to the trench. By now, he will definitely be dead. At this point, it was getting darker and the enemy was still firing. But this soldier wanted to search for his friend. So he went to his commanding officer and said, I want to go back out and search my friend. And the officer said, you know that? No, that is utterly foolish. He's, he's almost certainly dead. And if you go now, you will die. He ignored the officer and he went to search for his friend. It was extremely difficult. It was dark and there were hundreds of fallen all around. He searched and searched. In the middle of the night, he returned carrying his friend's dead body on his back. And he himself was terribly wounded. The moment he reached the trench, he fell on the floor with the body of his dead friend. And the officer said to him, I told you this was foolish. It wasn't worth it. Your friend is dead. And now you too are dying. And the dying man opened his eyes and he said, but you know it was worth it. I don't know why the Lord's just hitting me now, but he is. It was worth it. For when I got there, he looked up at me and said, Jim, I knew you'd come. You see, the thing is, Jesus has never left us alone. Jesus has come for us amidst our trials and distress and enemies and fear. He comes for us and he calls to be he calls and he calls us to be those who will lay down our lives for others, who will stand in the gap for others. Call on Jesus, call on God's people to stand with you as you resist an enemy, as you resist fear. The text says that the Jewish people fasted and wept, and they did it together. And thirdly, we see that they challenge each other. Mordecai comes to Esther and he reminds her of who she is. Mordecai sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Mordecai challenges her to remember who she is. You too belong to these people, the people of God. Don't forget God. Don't forget whose you are. In a moment of fear, Consciously call to mind the Lord, how he has worked in the past, who he is, and who you are. Don't be afraid and remember to whom you belong. Remember to who you belong. There are many moments in my life when I've needed to remember that. To whom do I, Kate, belong? So don't be afraid in the moments of distress, fear, and intimidation. We need to remember whose we are. And sometimes we need someone to challenge us. Esther needed Mordecai. And then fourthly, the specific challenge to Esther is a challenge to stand up. When resisting an enemy, we need to fast and pray and we need to do it together. We remember whose we are and we encourage each other to stand up against evil. Esther is challenged, chapter 4, verse 14. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish, and, and who knows but that you have come to your opposition for such a time as this. We may be really well acquainted with that phrase, for such a time as this, raised up for royal position. We take that phrase out of the Bible, and we forget a bit about trafficking, and the harem, and the difficulty. And we think, so, we think such a time as this, that we mean when God puts, puts us in a powerful position, and it's a badge of Christian success. Actually, when we look at this text in context, it's a challenge, an unbelievable challenge. The challenge is pretty harsh. The challenge is, think about where you are. Think about your resources you already have and ask yourself the question, what is the Lord saying to me? And Esther needs to hear that if she remains silent, God is sovereign, and relief will come in a different way, but she would have lost out. You have been placed in this position for such a time as this. In other words, now is the time that God is calling you to stand, to speak up, to act, to resist the enemy. Now is the time. It is actually pretty extraordinary when you think about it. This was a teenage girl, Esther was a teenage girl being subjected to pretty traumatic abuse. And yet God thinks that a young woman going through that can speak, can stand, can resist enemies. However weak or broken hearted we may feel this morning, Hear the word of the Lord, that God sees you and God hears your voice as powerful, that God sees you and he hears your voice and he thinks your voice is powerful. And God is calling you and I to consider, is it time for me to speak up? Another story out of Egypt. One of Amy or Ewing's colleagues is based in Egypt and leads the Middle East team. And he was doing a mission a couple of years ago in Baghdad. And it was a phenomenal opportunity. There was a lot of openness to the gospel there. And it may surprise you to know that the, um, the most popular book at that time in the Baghdad bookshop was the Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, translated into Arabic. There is a lot of disillusionment with God for obvious reasons. But in Iraq, there's also an openness to the gospel. Anyway, her colleague was speaking at some public meetings, and many people were coming to hear him. And a couple of days into the mission, he received a message on his phone, inviting him to have a one-to-one -one audience with the most well-known Iraqi sheikh, a very powerful and religious leader in that country. Well, as you can imagine, the guy was pretty nervous and asked his team to pray, and he asked his wife, what do you think? Do you think I should go? Is it a trap? But he decided to go. So he met this gentleman, and they had a conversation. 
And they talked for a couple of hours, talked about all kinds of things, classic, a very classic and a beautiful conversation, intellectual dialogue about faith and truth. And two hours, and two hours in, this cha the chap heard the Holy Spirit say to him, be braver. So he said to himself, I need to be braver. He found, heard the Holy Spirit, be braver. So he said to the sheikh, I need to ask you a question. And this is what he said. My question is, when you hear the name of Jesus, how does that make you feel? There was a bit of silence and the sheikh re responded. Apparently, it was very beautiful and poetic in Arabic. He said, I do not think there is a genuinely sincere person on earth who does not hear the name of Jesus and his soul longs to find its home in Jesus. And so he said, the guy said, if you feel that, what is preventing you from finding your soul's home in Jesus? To which the sheikh replied, nothing, that is why you're here. And as you can imagine, they had a great time of prayer. And as we will see from next week, Esther steps up. She responds to the challenge and God intervenes. She responds to the challenge. We see that pride can be an enemy. We have seen from the text how we might resist an enemy. And now as we land, we see how God sovereignly overturns enemies. At the beginning of chapter 6, Haman is filled with pride and he wants to kill Mordecai. He is very, very annoyed that his pride has been wounded by Mordecai refusing to bow to him. And now he comes into the king's presence and he's had the gallows made so his enemy Mordecai can be publicly and very specifically humiliated. Haman is seeking this shame for Mordecai but as we will look into next week, God overturns his enemy and God overturns our enemies. And so as we sum up this morning, we're going to have a time of worship. Sorry. And as Christians, we can look at Jesus for transformation and change. How do we resist our enemies, which will look very different for each of us? For Esther, it felt like this particular man, Haman, but the response for us is the same. How do we do it? How do we resist? We resist in prayer and fasting. We, ris we resist together and not alone. We resist by remembering whose we are. We resist by receiving the challenge to stand up and to speak, and to speak the truth. Why don't you stand?